1: Welcome to the overview of a special nine-part housing series starting in February, thanks in part to support from Pinnacle Financial Partners. The series will feature a deep focus on unhoused communities with the aim to educate, tell enriching stories, and generate live responses to the solutions and issues you may think only affect those in the lowest income brackets. Now for years, the WPLN News Desk has been keeping an eye or eyes on the housing situation in Nashville and Middle Tennessee. Here with me now is Tony Gonzalez, newsroom director at WPLN. Tony, it's good to have you on the show again. Thanks. Great to be back. Okay, so your voice is familiar to longtime listeners of WPLN, but you're new to the role of news director. Tell us a bit about your history with the station.
2: Yeah, right. So um, I joined as a reporter. So not an editor or a director of any type. Uh, I was a news reporter. I covered city hall a lot, mayoral administrations, metro council, I've also heard me doing our Curious Nashville series, where we answer questions from people. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the years, I've also just worked on some of our, our more ambitious work, like the series, the projects, uh, and even our investigative reporting. Through all of that, you know the team here has spent a lot of time really doing serious journalism, trying to understand the big issues in our community, like what you're talking about with housing. Uh, it can also be the legislature, the policy at the city council transportation, quality of life, all of that stuff, but definitely housing and affordability in my entire time in Nashville has been like a huge issue.
1: Now, housing, we're going to be focusing there. It's such a sprawling topic. How do how do the reporters and editors decide which housing stories to cover?
2: Yeah, right. I mean, if you say housing, you could mean a lot of different things, right? So, it could just mean you mean, you know, home ownership, like what's the housing market like? So, you know, that's where you've kind of got the stats about uh, you know, how much does the house cost? The sales, or like, what's the housing stock? How much inventory? That kind of stuff. So we do keep tabs on that. You might also mean like, how's it going for renters? You know, mm-hmm. rent prices just like going crazy. Uh, then there's also looking at affordable housing and the policies or programs that try to make more affordable housing in the city. So we also cover that. And then of course, there's all the layers of homelessness and encampments and what the policies are there, which I know your team has has had a lot of eyes on. Um, So WPLN does stories about all of the above, all of those different layers or or angles on housing. Um, One thing that we're often looking for when we decide to do a housing story is, we ask this question, what is new or different or what has changed? You know, what is something that we're noticing that is new and different that needs some attention or some explaining, some unpacking? Um, We also try to dig in, you know, wherever there's like a specific policy or program where we can try to track. Is it working? Mm -hmm. What has you know, has it had an impact on day to day life? That kind of thing.
1: So when you talk about housing programs, one of the big ones in Nashville is the Barnes Housing Trust Fund came up a lot over the past mayoral election. That's something you've covered for about a decade. What stands out to you about that?
2: Yeah. So yeah, the Barnes Fund did have their official milestone. They're they 10 years of the Barnes Fund. I do remember when it was first launched in 2013. The fund is really one of the main ways that Metro as a government intentionally preserves uh, or builds new affordable units. So the way this works, it's a grant program. They give the grants mostly to nonprofit housing developers. And then there's rules. They have to cap the rent or the sales price on those housing units. So like these are going to be affordable units. They're going to stay affordable for decades. For me, it is really interesting to see the results of that program. Like I got to see it launch when mm-hmm. it was a brand new thing, the first time we'd ever heard of the Barnes Fund. For me, it's really interesting to get to see some results of that program, and it really does take time to build housing units. So when I was getting ready to talk to you about this, I looked back at a story that I did in 2017 Uh, I actually went out to an empty lot in North Nashville uh, with Kay Bowers, she's a nonprofit developer. Her group was getting ready to build some affordable units with the Barnes Fund housing money. And uh, this is what that sounded like.
0: So we've lost a lot of modest, lower income housing. It's just, it's gone. And now the housing that's gone up is uh, the prices are over 300, well over 300,000.
2: Bowers runs the nonprofit New Level Community Development Corporation. It's a wing of the Mount Zion Church. With a grant from the Barnes Housing Fund and the gift of this lot, it'll become one of five homes her group is building.
0: The idea is to keep the property affordable long-term so that we don't lose so much housing stock, just to kind of stop the bleeding, so to speak.
2: So in that spot, like those houses that she was talking about, which it used to be an empty lot, there are now houses there. Mm-hmm. They, they've been built, and they're going to be affordable. So you can see that there's, you know, something has happened in this space. And if we zoom out a little bit, uh, officials now say the Barnes fund has given out about a hundred million dollars in ten years, and that has created four, thousand rental units and four hundred homes for sale. So they have been building that sounds like some real impact yeah, I mean, I guess it also depends who you ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so housing advocates, you know, they're going to say, yeah, four thousand affordable units. That's good. But there have also been studies over the years suggesting that Nashville needs to be building several thousand affordable units every year, ok. So the clock is ticking on that. But um, but yeah, we're definitely seeing these units being built. The Barnes fund is one of the ways
1: now, another huge player in housing is the MDHA, the Metro Development and Housing Agency they build and oversee federally subsidized housing, so public housing. This is another area that WPLN has covered closely. What coverage there are you most proud of?
2: Yeah, for this, I mean, we have to talk about season one of The Promise. You know, this is Maribah Knight's long-form podcast. Uh, For season one, she spent months and months getting to know residents at the James Casey Homes, that's in East Nashville. You know, If you're familiar with uh, Mariba's recent work, the kids of Rutherford County, definitely go back and revisit this first season where she spends you know, the serious time here getting to know folks. And what she found was that a lot of the MDHA apartments, these public housing units, were in really rough shape. And that as the agency was getting ready to tear some of those down and rebuild a lot more brand new units, which sounds like a really good thing, um, it was still going to be really disruptive for residents You know, those disruptions were going to play out over several years.
1: We have an excerpt from The Promise that shows what it's like for residents. This is a moment where Miss Vernell McHenry, she had to decide whether to stay in her apartment, which had a nice porch where she would hang out and watch neighbors or move to a brand new unit. But it didn't have that stoop. Let's listen.
3: We went to the grand opening of Barrett Manor. Casey's first new building in more than half a century. It was a big deal. The building, with 70 apartments, mostly for seniors and the disabled, was the first big step in Casey's redevelopment. On the tour, there was even a woman who broke down in tears, overwhelmed by how nice everything was. And initially, Miss Fernell was really excited about Barrett Manor too.
4: It's just so beautiful, I'm just, I, don't, I don't know how to act. I'm like a child in a new candy store.
3: But after realizing there was no place to sit outside and connect with her neighbors, she began to worry that she'd feel shut in by the tiny apartment. Ultimately, she decided not to move into the new building. Nearly a full year later, I caught up with Miss Fernell on a warm sunny afternoon in early spring and as usual she was sitting outside this time in front of casey's community
4: center oh it's so nice out it's beautiful it is beautiful so how are you doing this beautiful day i'm good yeah
3: i i wanted to you know i'm just following up like what's new
4: well new i have a new home good morning morning. all right she had to move into a new apartment at least it was new for her. Well, I had to move into because we had a, a bad sewage problem under my building, under and next to my building. And so I had to, um, all right, how you doing? So I had to move out because they condemned the building.
3: Old pipes broke and the leak was so bad that everyone in her block of apartments, eight in total, had to get out.
4: Hi, Miss Gloria. Mm-hmm. I like your new hair, girl. So it was the sewage, the sewage was um, the, the, the odor and the bacteria or whatever was coming into my apartment. And so they condemned the building.
3: And didn't they offer you a spot in the new building again?
4: Yes, they offered me a spot in the new building, but I didn't want to take it. I still didn't want to take the new building. Not yet.
3: <laughs> so after everything Miss Fresnel had been through, she ended up moving anyway. But she still declined a spot in barrett manor choosing instead another old dimly lit unit in the project across the street from her old apartment but at least she kept her stoop that she was so concerned about
2: one of the things that reporting like this can really do is put you out there like next to someone in the real world as they're dealing with challenges and making those decisions so it's not just about covering The housing market, the statistics, the programs, it's about learning what's really happening for people out in the world.
1: Now, tell me more about the kind of coverage. What kind of coverage WPLN, the newsroom, is going to be looking at moving forward?
2: Yeah, well, housing and the affordability of housing are still major challenges for the city. Uh, In fact, in survey after survey and polls, we see people ranking housing affordability as like a top concern. Uh, more recently, I think we've been you know, making sure to include more information about rent trends. Mm. Like in our newscasts, you'll hear those statistics as rents increase, how Nashville compares to other cities uh, with a really hot rental market. So we're definitely covering that. I know the city has also created this, they call it a dashboard about affordable housing and demographics and what's going on. I think that's something that our reporters will be keeping an eye on. And then one of the other big policy areas is how the city and the state will approach homelessness and encampments, which I know you mentioned earlier, and how you know how to transition people from uh, unhoused spaces into permanent housing. Uh, so that's something that I'm looking forward to a lot more coverage of. You
1: got the perfect title for a series on renting. The rent is too damn high. Hard to argue with that. That's right. Tony Gonzalez is WPLN's news director. Tony, thanks for taking time to sit down with us. Yeah, you bet. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk with two people who shared passions for working with the unhoused community and journalism created an opportunity for others and a meaningful friendship. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna. And this is Nashville. Housing and homelessness. These are two of the biggest issues we face here in Middle Tennessee. In February, This Is Nashville will be launching a project on housing, focusing on the unhoused community. The project is made possible in part thanks to support from Pinnacle Financial Partners. One of the leaders of the project is Judith Tackett, who's worked for years as the director of Metro Homeless and Impact Division. She's now an independent consultant with Tackett Consulting and a former guest of the show. I'd like to welcome her back. Judy, thanks for being here.
5: Well, thanks for having me. This is exciting.
1: Okay, so first tell me this. Let's go back. When did you first move to Nashville?
5: I came here in 1995 and uh, have experienced all the growth of Nashville, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I moved here to study at Belmont University.
1: What was your first impressions of the city?
5: Um, I loved Nashville and I I had been visiting and was in downtown and hanging out at the first coffee shop and I I loved it and it was exciting, not realizing how dead downtown really was. Mm. And then um, what I liked is the small feel. I felt comfortable coming from a small village in another country. Coming here, it was still manageable as a city. It wasn't overwhelming. And I felt I could grow along with the city.
1: So the city has grown oh, quite a bit. How do you feel about that growth?
5: Um, it's exciting. It's exciting. It's also I I like situations where there are opportunities, uh, where we can grow and where we can um, form what change can look like. Um, Especially also when I worked in Metro, I liked that type of startup. What can we do? How can we collaborate? And that's always been the feel in Nashville and still is. Um, We have to be careful how we grow, but it's something that we together as a community can still form.
1: Now, I understand when you came to Nashville back in 95, you came to study journalism, correct?
5: Yes, correct.
1: What is your interest? What what led you towards a degree in journal- journalism?
5: Um, so my background, I, I grew up in Switzerland. Everything is really nice and, <laughs> you know, yeah. and perfect. And, and it's like one uh, of the
1: happiest countries,
5: right? I think so, yes. Um, so I was all happy, all of that. and I went to um, the first trip alone with the parents uh, in my teens was to South Africa. I was still apartheid. Mm. And I was able and had an opportunity to visit a township. And I knew at that point already I wanted to write. I wanted to be a journalist. And at that point, I decided I wanted to talk about the ills of the world. You know, this idealistic, hey, this story needs to be told. These people are hidden from the tourism. I'm a tourist here, and I had this opportunity to see it. That's the type of journalism I want to do. Um, there was no journalism school in Switzerland at that point. And I was, uh, I had been visiting Nashville before. I was like, I know the city a little bit. I have some friends here. I'm going to go and study at Belmont University.
1: What was your first journalism gig here?
5: I was, there was a startup in 2000 called the City Paper. And I was one of their first reporters.
1: Okay. What, when did you make the decision and what... Well, let me phrase it like this. When did you make the connection to homelessness and covering that in your work?
5: So because of that experience in South Africa, I was adamant. I, I just told myself we need to, as as journalists, we have kind of a responsibility to use our platform and cover some stories of people that are overlooked. And it was homelessness and foster care that I was focusing on and, and trying to find a story and write a story about Either one of them once a month, just to consistently do that. And that's how I I really got into the issues of of homelessness, what's going on in the city, what is uh, city government doing, what is the state, what is the federal government doing, and really started to get into it that way.
1: Was there one event as a journalist that stood out to you when you covered homelessness?
5: Yes, in and I actually really had to think it was exactly twenty years ago in two thousand and four when Governor then Governor Bradison announced an interagency council on homelessness, and everybody met at Room and in Inn. So Charlie Strobel, of course, was there. Mm-hmm. Um, governors, representatives, commissioners. There was uh, out of the White House representatives were there, local government. I mean, all these leaders. Activists, nonprofit leaders, everybody was in that room and people experiencing homelessness. And it was a celebration and it was impressive. And I was sitting in the back and I was just as a journalist watching. And then the cameras turned off, the event was done and the bickering started.
2: Mm. It's,
5: it really stood out to me with we celebrating, we are together in a room, the cameras are on. But then when the cameras turn off, we all have the same goals and yet we focus on sometimes how, we're just not on the same page in how to do things and how to approach things. And that's kind of stood out to me and, and that stuck with me that we just need to really always remember that bottom line, we have when we have the same goals, we have common, we, we need to find the commonalities that we can work together.
1: I mean, you've gone on to expand beyond journalism to working for the city and things, but this experience, seeing that when the cameras are on, everyone's playing nice. And it's a nice photo op let's say the camera the lights turn off the bickering starts of the process of how do we get to this goal that we all share different paths different philosophies different methods how did that experience impact your decision making as you moved on to leadership roles working for the government and different institutions
5: listening uh for me fundamentally finding that common ground and really understanding where people come from, whatever their background is? What is their motivation to be in this field? Because everybody has a personal story and truly, truly believes we can change something around homelessness and help help people. And so let's just start with listening to each other, find their common ground and, and focus on a common goal that we can work towards.
1: How hard is that to get people to listen to each other?
5: Uh, it's hard but it's it's just a lot of one on one it's a lot of relationship building is it's a lot of that trust building that fundamental trust even if we disagree we, we know we find a common project that we can work together
1: i find it i find it interesting because building that trust is so important yet when you you're dealing with people's passions people's beliefs people's ideals sometimes they guard those you know as closely as they do with their most valued personal secrets building that trust is vitally important. Um, have, have there been, ever been an instance where you were challenged in building trust with others?
5: Yes, uh, of course. You know, um, I, I can't think of a specific instance right now, but sometimes it's also where, well, one, one situation I remember where I was actually really in disagreement with somebody and then we were like, okay, let's put a break on that. Let's focus on this other issue. And because we had this fundamental, hey, we can work together and we both trusted each other wants the best, Hmm. we could work on that project and pick the other one up two days later when we all calmed down.
1: Yeah. okay. so uh, I want to go back just a little bit. How did you get from journalism to working for metro government?
5: Um, I was, as a journalist, uh, working with um, government and departments and really met with the department heads and with the frontline staff and just listen to them again i didn't do a story necessarily just what do you do and learn with them one-on-one and then when i became a freelancer um i i was asked to help out with some newsletters or annual reports that's kind of how i got into it and then back then there was a relatively new metropolitan homelessness commission that asked me to do this regularly hired me part-time and so i got into that more and more until i was full-time hired in 2011
1: okay you did that work for a long time tell me this what is your why
5: i believe that there is that government has the means to bring people together um we don't always in leadership changes it doesn't it there is a co-leadership i think around homelessness that needs to happen that's really really important and i just believe government has a natural platform to see where opportunities are that sometimes a nonprofit doesn't have the same platform to you know, reach across um, uh, the community and bring everybody together. And I always felt government, for me, it really um, resonates to think about public servants and what that means. Mm. And local government is really at the core of that. That's where where people live. That's where you build communities. Um, local government doesn't always have to be the leader in everything, but can be a co-lead or bring their leaders together to give them that platform and collaborate.
1: All right. Now, joining us now is a very familiar name to listeners, Tasha A.F. Lemley. She's a longtime journalist who's focused on housing and homelessness in her career. She's also the senior producer. This is Nashville. Tasha, welcome to this side of the show.
0: Hello, Khalil. <laughs> hey.
1: Okay. So talk to me about your photojournalism background. How'd you get started?
0: Yeah, so I think I got started photographing in high school. You know, I wanted to do—this is the 90s. I'm going to age myself there, but um, wanted to do, you know, the Gothic cemetery <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> photos. Yeah. So I think that's how I started. And then um, I did go on to college to a photojournalism career. One of my first projects was Waffle House After Midnight. Mm. And um, that was when you could still smoke there, you know. and when, wow. when, Yeah, so it was— um, that was a, a really good era of Waffle House, but that—that's that's sort of how my photojournalism started. That's what got me in. You know, I think even in even in those two projects I just mentioned, there's a bit of subculture. There's a bit of um, you know these worlds that I that I that I that I wanted to see a little bit more closely.
1: When did you move to Nashville?
0: So I moved to Nashville in 2002. So I've been here. What is, or oh, we're looking at 22 years, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay, so how did you get accustomed to being here in Nashville? What did you do to find your place here?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so I still don't know if I found my place here, but um, in 2002, I really didn't have my place here. I had come uh, hoping to make a living as a graphic designer, so I had learned enough in the photojournalism program to do basic layouts and um, really enjoy that visual art. So thought... You know, at that time, you, you really do think you're going to get out of college and get the job. I wanted to make $36,000. That's what I thought I wow. was going to make. Yeah, yeah like yeah. I had, my sights were set really high. So I had uh, applied something like two dozen places and had a dozen interviews and didn't get hired anywhere. Um, and then finally got one offer for Kinko's downtown. It was 3rd and Broadway. So that is where I landed. And And, you know, talking about finding my place, I felt really lost. I felt overlooked. I felt this is not what I'm in this city for. You know, I at as a Kinko's, you know, no offense to FedEx Kinko's, but you know, it's like, that's not, that's not where I'd hope to be. And so I even cried on my way to work the first day. Mm. So I, I lived in Antioch at the time. So I'm driving, you know, on the interstates were much more clear. Like I don't remember it being packed. I'm heading in and, um, and crying. And yeah, so that's, 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 you know, Sort of the first place I landed was at that little corner.
1: So you're at the corner working at Kinko's. Kind of upset about it, looking for other things. (laughs) So what were your passions at that time? I know photography and graphic design were your passions, but was working with the unhoused community a passion at that time?
0: No, no. I don't know for sure that I had ever talked to someone who was homeless. Um, I did not know that I had ever engaged with someone who had formerly been homeless. And, um, yeah, that kind of snuck up on me.
1: Okay, so was there a moment where... Like, your passion for this work kind of met your personal life. What kicked off this interest and passion for working with homeless oh, people? Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's an exact moment where I'm driving in to work one day, feeling sorry for myself, and um, thinking, what what do I need to do? You know, I'm, I'm someone who loves to ask for advice. I love to talk to people who know more than I do, because I only know what can fit in a thimble. And it occurs to me on my way in one day, oh, there's, you know... There's a little parking lot behind Kinko's where we used to park and or what used to be Kinko's. And there is was a um, a a, a unhoused man who lived on the bench on that, you know, one minute walk from the car to the door. And he came to mind and I thought, oh, you know, he's there every day and I never talked to him. He never talked to me. I think there was this perceived Difference, you know, we didn't see each other as um, as equals, or we didn't see each other as people you would talk to. Mm-hmm. And you know, Khalil, like if you and I saw each other at Dunkin' Donuts every day grabbing our coffee, eventually I'm going to be like, I see you every day. Hey, <laughs> you know, hey, do you work near Do you live near here? What's up? Yeah. Um, but because there was such a perceived difference between us, we never talked to each other. So this day, you know, I'm I'm like excavating my soul, and I'm I you know I'm early twenties, and I think. I'm going to do something really radical. I'm going to say hi to this guy. Um, I'm in pain. This person knows more than I do about pain uh, by appearances. And uh, so I remember gripping the steering wheel. Like, I remember my hands on the wheel and I am terrified. I'm going to talk to this guy. I mean, I grew up in a middle-class family in Northern Alabama. And one of the things you don't do as a young woman is talk to homeless men. Mm. And, um, but I really felt compelled to this day, so I parked the car. I walked up to him. I stuck my hand in his face, and it startled him. Um, he was looking down, and he he popped up, and I said, "Hi, I'm Tasha." And he said, "Hi, I'm Don." And we shook hands. And I thought of something to ask him that day, and and I walked in, and over the next few days, I would think of something to ask Don every day, like uh, I didn't I didn't know anything, like where do you sleep at night or what do you pray for, um, and. And finally, I was inspired to photograph him. So that's where the big connection is made. I asked him if I could photograph him, and I did some photos. This was film, uh, but because I was at Kinko's, I could scan them in and print them out and do my own little creative work and gave him some of the pictures. And um, then he gave those pictures to an outreach worker who I didn't even know what those were with MDHA. And the outreach worker came into Kinko's one day, stuck these photos in my face, and said, Did you do this? And hmm. I'm scared. Of, you know, I'm scared a lot in a lot of my stories. And I'm like, Yeah. And he said, Would you like to do more? And I said, Absolutely. And this man was Lee Mitchell at the time at MDHA. And so I started shadowing Lee and photographing people living on the streets.
1: What was that experience like?
0: Yeah. So uh, at, at first, again, terrified. This was um, early 2000s. And I. Uh, You know, traveled around on foot with Lee to a campus for human development uh, room in the inn. Um, And it was much if you've been there, it was much different looking at the time. There was kind of a chain fence out back, like a pen that everybody would kind of hang out and sit in. And I remember going to that pen for the first time and feeling really, you know, just... um, claustrophobic. And there were so many men, so many men. And then the one big turning point for me was I went with Lee one day to Riverfront Park and we were talking to probably about seven homeless men. And again, this was at night and we're kind of surrounded and I'm just like, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, this is what I was told not to do. And then I relaxed a little and I, and I, there was some sort of familiarity that i didn't understand they, there was a sense of humor a wit that was disarming um these men were very protective of me they were mm. very paternal and warm and um and i thought there, there's something there's something familiar here the the type of intelligence the, the the sense of humor the culture was familiar to me and it wasn't until years later that i realized my own brother um had been homeless
1: mm.
0: and they reminded me of him yeah
1: What did that realization do for you?
0: Yeah, that, you know, I knew growing up my brother had uh, struggled with addiction, particularly alcoholism. I knew that he had done prison time um, more than once. I hadn't put it together. You know, nowadays I might start to... uh, you know, suppose that someone might have also experienced homelessness at some point, with a certain number of of other life experiences. Um, I didn't know that about Mike. I didn't know that about my brother. And so that that occurred to me, and we happened to intersect uh, at the next Thanksgiving. We were at our Thanksgiving table, me and him, and mom and dad. And um, and you know, normally he was pretty absent from my life. He was. Uh, Kind of missing a lot if he wasn't incarcerated. I didn't know where he was, Mm. but we were we intersected this one Thanksgiving and He refers to himself as us homeless people and I just remember, you know, my mind is blown Like I I didn't know that, you know, I had wondered at that point didn't know and he confirmed it and um, one of the most touching moments that of my life was um, uh, Needed to drop him off at the rescue mission later that night. This is in Alabama and he needed a bag to put his book. I think he had a book and maybe a shirt and a comb. And he didn't want to take those into the mission. And um, we'll be addressing this some um, in the in the show that that Judy and I are launching. You know, he, he didn't want those things to be stolen. They were precious to him. And so I remember my mom. She's a very tiny woman, uh, five feet tall at the time. And I remember her down on the floor, digging under the kitchen sink, looking for the best plastic bag for her son Hmm. to go stay at the mission so he could put this bag under a bush. Um, And there was something about seeing my little mom, you know, still mothering. The only way she knew how in that moment was to find the best plastic bag. Um, Yeah.
1: I can imagine that having this personal experience and now being here, kind of finding this opportunity to take photographs with these folks. And launching yourself into that community, realizing the personal connection you had probably ignited, grew the fire that you had, the passion that you had inside.
0: I think that's fair. I think I have tried to fix other people's brothers and fathers because I couldn't fix my own. Mm
1: -hmm. Now... You went on from taking photographs and you transitioned and you added the skill of doing audio recording in this work, (laughs) which makes you so fantastic as our senior producer here for the show. How did you get started into that? What was that transition? Okay,
0: like? okay. So, yeah, so Lee Mitchell, um, the outreach worker I mentioned from MDHA, as he's transitioning out, he brings in another outreach worker, Will Connolly, and uh, passes me off, I guess, with a job like, hey, take her along with you. She's better than a puppy. Um, <laughs> and um, and so Will was all about the photography. He said, I want to record people's stories. That was, again, not something interesting to me at the time, but I, I wanted to do what this person who was letting me into this world, you know, guiding me into this world, what they wanted. And so uh, Will wanted to just go to uh, Walgreens and get one of those little mini tape cassette recorders. This American Life was already out at the time, though, and I knew just enough to know this is not the way to do this. If we're going to do this, it needs to be digital, it needs to be archival, like whatever we capture needs to be good. So I think I'd gone on transom.org and um, picked up a digital recorder and a condenser mic, and we started hitting the streets and just sitting down to listen to people.
1: Can we hear a little bit of that early audio?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're gonna hear from Bones, and um, Bones was uh, well-loved. And I think in this clip, one of the things you're gonna hear, Bones is full of life. And Will and I, I don't know in all of our interviews, we ever asked anybody, so why are you homeless? I think it's not that we didn't care, but we didn't care. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, I wanna hear, tell me a scary story from when you were growing up. Tell me a sad story. What is your proudest accomplishment so far in your life? These are the things we wanted to know. Like if, and, But what I found, and I still use this to this day, I mean, man, once you stick a mic in someone's face, and maybe I'm an example of that now, once they feel comfortable, they just start rolling. Yeah. And the most beautiful stuff comes out. Okay, so we're going to hear from Bones and um, and hear about one of his passions.
4: Oh, I love trains. Oh, God, do I love trains. Best way the world to travel. It is. Why is it? Yeah, you just get you some water, some food, a couple of days of food, a couple of days of water, take your hammock, hang it in between the the cargo rings and kick back and and listen to the radio, you know? And you wake up and you're where you want to be. You go to sleep, just about anywhere in the southeast, man, in a day and a half. Like the the hot shot from uh, Gainesville to Evansville, you know the get off points and get off points are anywhere in the United States except for Hawaii. Man, can't get there by train.
1: You know, he really sounds like he's at peace.
0: Yeah, he was a, he was a really kind man. He he has since passed, um, and uh, yeah, just you can you can hear the daydreaming. I think you know you can hear him. Putting himself on one of those trains that just takes him wherever he wants to go.
1: Mm. Can we hear one more clip before we go to break?
0: Okay, yeah. So we're gonna hear from a man uh, named Cowboy. It was David Luttrell. He has also since passed. And um, if you were downtown anytime in the early two thousands, you might remember Cowboy, um, glasses, uh, long beard, cowboy hat, and he was a wheelchair rider and often had a little dog with him that may or may not make an appearance in this clip um, but uh, so this is him to set this up a little bit he is complaining and kind of processing some of his thoughts about other people in the homeless community and um, and we do get interrupted part way so you'll have to kind of listen closely
4: now there's a, there's a percentage of them that are just users but there's a lot large percentage of them that's had bad things go on they got to have some help and with help, they can, they can cure their sin. You know, it don't take long to figure out who the users are. Keep going from one place to another place, like a church hopper. You go from one place to another place, another place, always looking for that handout, exactly. or the ones that are really taking the handout and using it. How you? How'd it do you do? Doing good. How are you doing, Captain Sassy? How about yourself?
5: I'm doing great. I was down there with Pessy here. Tell you guys. I just
2: yeah. wanted to see where I was. This is Natasha. Hi,
5: Judy good Taggart to the Hi. City Paper. Good to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Judy. Oh, I just
3: interrupted you. Guys. Oh, no, no. It's fine.
5: I'll talk to you a time
4: or two. <laughs> yeah, the City Paper's not giving us <laughs> any <anything>. good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he knows the City Paper's not being good to homeless people.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yes, th- this is the moment Judy and I meet. Wow. Judy, I happened upon this tape, like, out of maybe 30 hours of tape I gasped out loud when I saw this that like this is the moment you and I met 18 years ago it is on tape. The, I I am <laughs> a little bit in shock right now because I didn't expect that and then also the
5: story and the, the relationship that developed with Cowboy so Cowboy and I had the same birthday mm. and so every July, he came on our birthday with a cake, a, a strawberry cake, because he, I had at one point mentioned, that was my birthday cake that my mom always made me in Switzerland. So every time he rolled into government office with that cake on my birthday and just handed it to wow. me. So it's like, yeah.
0: He was kind of a, a polarizing figure. I think there's a lot of people that really hated Cowboy. <laughs> there was a lot of us that really loved him. Um, he was always kind to me. He was always happy to see me. He would sing. He was, he was also very, very full of life until the day he died. And he would tell you the truth and what he's thinking and what he's feeling
5: and, and speak up. And it was really, I think, when you listen to people and really get to know them... And and that's something we want to show in this series is we all are nuanced. Mm. We all are. I mean, it's hopelessness. It's it's hopefulness all at the same time. And cowboy is a good example of that. To he could come into meetings and be really angry, or he could come in and be very thoughtful. And at the core, was just a really good guy. It
1: sounds like cowboy was this perfect spirit to bring you two together.
0: You won. Look at that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about the special project on housing and homelessness and discover how the community can find solutions. You can always join the conversation by tweeting us at ThisIsNashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. and this is Nashville. We're talking about a special project on housing that will debut in February on This is Nashville. The series is here in part from help from Pinnacle Financial Partners. Now, here with me are two of the people who are heading up that project, Judith Tackett and Tasha AF Limley. Thanks again to both of you for being here with us. Now, before the break, we learned a lot about your journeys in journalism and advocacy for the unhoused that led you two to meet each other. Now, I want to hear a little bit more about the project. But before then, Tasha, you went on from doing this work to found the contributor, People, a paper that a lot of people out here in the city can purchase and read. Tell me a little bit more about that experience.
0: Yeah, so I think I, I had the right mix um, in 2007 of interest and skill to uh, start a street newspaper in Nashville, the contributor, and did that with uh, my co-founder Tom Wills and a handful of other co-founders, including Will Connolly, who was mentioned earlier, who many, many, many years later is now the current executive director. That's a new thing. And uh, so another weird little full full circle moment in the Small, little, big city we have here. That's awesome. And one more thing, I wanted to clarify: we mentioned the homeless impact division. We mentioned the uh, homelessness commission. I'm sure they're breaking out in hives uh, listening to this, Judy. What is the name of of this government group now? It
5: is called the Office of Homeless Services, and another tidbit: so Will Conley. Calmly was uh, the director of the homelessness commission i worked for him and then i became the director and we turned it into the homeless impact division and now it's evolved to the office of homeless services
1: okay okay now this project that we're talking about here on the show today it's been in the works for some time right judy
5: yes um i think think like a couple years two years yes we've been talking about what would it look like what's the education piece Uh, that needs to happen on some of the concepts when we talk about uh, solving homelessness. And nationwide, there is a lot of um, disagreement on uh, the best example is what Housing First is. And a lot of people still think it's a program. It's really a philosophy. It's like, what would it really mean to dig in what these concepts mean? What does it mean to solve homelessness? What are, you know, looking behind the terminology and then including the voices of the people and telling their stories and the diversity of what homelessness looks like in, in the nation, in the city, in the state. And it's not just a person on the streets that we see. it It is way broader than that.
1: What is the title of the project? What's it called? We're calling it In My Place. Why did you decide on In My Place?
0: Because, you know, Judy and I were, were batting around a bunch of different ideas. And on the phone, we were kind of zoning out. We're like, I'm running, I'm running out of steam. And finally, one of us said the word place. And it kind of resonated with both of us, like place, place. There's something about that word that got us. And the phrase In My Place you know it 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 can it can have different meanings depending on how you're using it like he put me in my place mm-hmm. you know that means like something but we often hear people who are about to get housed say i've got my place mm-hmm. or they're getting me a place and then someone is in my place um Yeah, so we just thought it was a beautiful phrase that over over the next week continued to resonate with us, and so that's what we're going with.
1: And I like that because as a listener, you know, so many people are looking at their place in the world, Mm -hmm. and listeners could recognize their place in our society, in our city, and what they can do to help. Um, Something that I'm interested in, I'm interested. I want to find out what exactly you guys are going to go deeper in covering. But Judy, you said something about educating. You wanna educate people on the depth and the reality of these issues. Is that really, why is education a focus of what you all are gonna cover?
5: I think uh, when we fundamentally wanna solve something, we have to understand what is it that we're solving. And that includes education. And I the term education I like because it's, we learning together, and that's the hope of this series as well, is like learning from each other and creating that space to learn from each other and what does it mean, I, I like the name because it's also what does it mean for each of us to belong somewhere where we can say this is I have found my place, I'm in my place and it, it's a, it, it can be community and fundamentally I think when homelessness is solved we have communities that work for each person for all of us mm. together. Mm.
1: Now, can you elaborate on a couple terms that I've come by? I've come by the term cross-sector and cross-systems collaboration. <laughs> elaborate. Educate me <laughs> on what those things mean.
5: When I am thinking about cross-sector, I'm thinking about nonprofit sector. I'm thinking government sector. I'm thinking faith uh, sector, faith communities and business communities and uh, when we all come together we create community and that's the cross sector collaboration now going to cross systems when I'm looking at what causes homelessness um, for me homelessness always has meant it's, it's a housing status it's a housing description so the homelessness sector alone cannot solve the housing that's lacking. So you have to bring the affordable housing conversation very strongly to the forefront when we talk about this issue. But it's not just housing, it's also access to healthcare, education, uh, other supports that needs to be in place, um, uh, looking at systems, criminal justice systems that feed into homelessness. What are the issues? Why are people getting out of some institutions into homelessness and become homeless. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what this systems collaboration looks like.
1: Now, Judy, you have nearly 25 years experience in this city. Before we say goodbye, tell us this. As an expert, what are some of the changes we've seen around homelessness and where we are today?
5: So... I am looking at the national level. There's a lot of good conversations around going on. We know how to solve homelessness. We know Housing First works for chronic homelessness. We know housing needs to be the foundation we know affordable housing conversations and homelessness conversations have to be hand in hand. We know all of this. Um, I think that conversation has really changed over the last 20 years to really go uh, and think about healthcare. Fundamentally, if you want to improve healthcare, people need to be in housing. Mm. Uh, that's kind of the main issues that have changed. And then at the local level, when we're we really looking at over the years, you know, from from the time I described in, in the earlier segment about people bickering with each other, it's like now the bickering is more around let's collaborate. Mm. There is this collaboration sense that when you build that up, it's still there. And and there's a lot of uh, collaboration going on and people trying to find their places in how do we work together. And those are really positive changes that we cannot forget and that we need to build up on. The other thing that really, really has changed is a data-driven approach. We need to measure what outcomes are at at the system level, and at the community level, and then at the program level. And I think we've we've made great strides on that as well.
1: Now, Tasha, are we gonna hear from unhoused people in this series?
0: We sure are, I think, especially in the first episode, um, we're gonna pack it with voices. There's a plan to, of uh, the plan is to pack it with voices who have experienced homelessness at some point. Um, but every episode is, we're gonna hear from someone who who intimately knows what we're talking about through their own experience, yeah.
1: Judy, what are you looking forward to the most for this project?
0: Really bringing home what In
5: My Place means to the different people that we're going to invite as guests, what it means to them and what it means to them in, a, in the sense of the community, and making sure that we have that voice um, from people with different backgrounds that have struggled in the affordable housing space.
1: I really want to thank you both for being here. I really appreciate that.
0: Thank you, Khalil. Thank
1: you. <laughs> My guests were Judith Tackett and Tasha A.F. Limley, who are the masterminds behind the special project titled In My Place, a series that is made possible in part thanks to support from Pinnacle Financial Partners. Now, the series will be focusing on housing and homelessness. Judith and Tasha, thank you again so much.
0: Thank you. Thank
1: you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced and directed by Tasha A.F. Limley. Our board operator is Liv Lombardi. The masterminds behind our theme music are L'Orange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.